take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be focusing this morning on, uh, on verses 34 through 39. But we're actually going to start kind of at the beginning of the, of the chapter to, to uh, launch us into that passage. Last week, we looked at uh, the ethics and standards of, of the kingdom people. We talked about Jesus' church being referred to in Matthew over and over and over as the kingdom. That was the, the term that was used. So we looked at the kingdom and what it looked like, looks like in that kingdom. This week, we look at the call of kingdom people. And not just, though we will briefly look at the actual call of some people, we are looking more at what we are called to this morning as we look at Matthew. Uh, but first, go with me about uh, 230 years ago to England. Uh, the first mention of the abolition of the slave trade in England, in, in English Parliament, was in 1788. 1788 was the first time it was mentioned. Uh, if you're familiar with the movie Amazing Grace, tells the story of William Wilberforce and his, uh, his efforts to end not just the slave trade, though that's how he began, but also slavery as, as an institution in England. In 1788, it wasn't him, it was a friend. Wilberforce was sick, but its first mention was in 1788, and then the next year, 1789, William Wilberforce made his first speech against the slave trade um, to Parliament. The first vote occurred in 1791. It was in the House of Commons, and it was 163 against the abolition of the slave trade and 88 for the abolition of the slave trade. House of Commons and the House of Lords, if you're not familiar with the English Parliament, they are in some ways similar to our Senate and the House of Representatives. They, they carry some of those uh, similarities. Uh, I'm not completely clear on it either, but that's enough for us this morning. So in 1791, 163 were against the abolition of the slave trade, 88 were for. The slave trade was actually abolished in 1807. All this time, William Wilberforce has been working toward it. 18 years after his fight began, slave trade, the slave trade in England was abolished. In the House of Lords, it was abolished by a vote of 100 to 34, and in the House of Commons, it was abolished by a vote of 283 to 16. The House of Lords was going to be the more difficult house to get it passed through. Uh, the Lords were the, exactly what it sounds like, the, the wealthier folks, the ones that probably had the most to lose in the abolition of the slave trade, and yet it, it passed 100 to 34. Then in July 26th of uh, 1833, slavery was completely abolished in England. 44 years after the fight, was begun. Now, initially, Wilberforce did not begin with the proclaimed idea of abolishing slavery. He began with abolishing the slave trade, knowing or hoping that over time it would abolish itself, or at least that would present a springboard to abolish slavery, and it was, uh, he was right. Forty-four years after he began his fight, his ultimate goal was reached. William Wilberforce died three days later. As a matter of fact, he was no longer in Parliament. He was no longer there 
when slavery was abolished, he was told about it after it happened, and he wept there on his, what ended up being his deathbed. See, it's hard to be on the right side. It's hard to be called a radical. It's hard to stand up for what you know is right when there are those who are both influential and friends and family, and those may not all be the same, but they may, who are fighting against you and decrying you and demeaning you because of your stands. That's where William, William Wilberforce found himself for 44 years, and yet he never wavered from his cause because he knew that it was a righteous cause. He was friends with John Newton, uh, the gentleman who wrote Amazing Grace, the man who wrote Amazing Grace after his conversion experience while he was a slave trader. So they understood the fight, they understood the difficulty, and they understood what it was to fight with, for something, to be on the wrong side of something, at least in the way everyone else approached it. Jesus talks about that. He says in Matthew 10, 32 through 39, look there with me, that's what we'll read. He says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. We go back to the beginning of chapter 10, we'll kind of see this call to his people. His, him calling out certain people to follow him. We, we see Jesus call the twelve in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, calling the 12 disciples really to be the new Israel. It, there was no, psychologists today will say that the, the number 12 was important because that was about all the, the, the strong relationships you can have at one time for, for what he was doing anyway, this discipleship. That's, that's the most you can do, and that's, that's probably true. I don't deny that, but what I will say is the 12 had a different purpose than just it was easiest for him. He was calling out 12 new tribes. Of, of, of Israel. This was a new Israel that was being called out. And these men, they left jobs, they left families. We know Peter and James and John were called to leave their nets, put them down, just I mean, in the middle of work, come and follow me. Matthew left his, or Levi left his, uh, his tax collector's table, uh, middle of work, God called them and they left. We, we know that uh, families did not necessarily approve of what was going on. We, we see hints of that throughout the Gospels. So Jesus calls his 12, calls them to, to live called out, live for what ends up being three years different from everybody, and, and probably, well, and not even probably, they ended up leaving their jobs for good. I mean, Peter and, and others became missionaries. They, they, they no longer, they didn't go back to their nets. Toward the end there, they did, right? And he comes and gets them and says, what are y'all doing? Hey, 
we got a job to do. And then they get it, and they, they leave their jobs for good. We see in verses 5 through 15, Jesus directing his ministry to Jews. Uh, we see a, a phrase in that passage telling them, telling the disciples to go out to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't, don't go into Gentile areas. Go to my lost sheep first. Now, that didn't mean that he was not going to minister to Gentiles, because as we, if we go back just a couple of chapters, um, his ministry, we see in chapter 8, was indirect toward Gentiles. As a matter of fact, we see numerous times where Gentiles came to him uh, and, and asked for uh, help. The, the centurion, the, uh, the, the lady, uh, the, the, what would have been a, probably a Phoenician lady from, uh, I believe, Tyre, that came to him while he was ministering in that area. And, and he would heal them. He would do things for them. But his ministry was indirect. But he says in this, this chapter that from, uh, from around the world, from all nations, they will come to Abraham's feet. They will come and, and hear the message. He's telling them, look, the, the message is going to the Gentiles, but right now I've got to focus. There, there's, there's a time frame I need to work with here. There's something I need to do specifically and then we will go and we will reach the Gentiles. And that, that God, uh, Jesus was very, very aware of that. He was not rejecting the Gentiles. He was just saying, not right now. We've got to set a, a foundation. So that's what he does when he calls his 12, when he ministers to the Jews. And then as we move through chapter 10, Jesus tells his people to first expect persecution. And he's already covered this, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. They, they know this is, is going to happen, but he's telling them, you can expect that, verses 16 through 25. It, it will, I'm sending you like sheep among the wolves, he begins that passage with. That, that doesn't come across as, you know, a fun time, an easy time, something that they're just going to sit back and say, well, this is great. I'm glad Jesus told us to do this. It's wonderful. No, it's, it's not going to work out that way. He told them to fear God in verses 26 through 33 of chapter 10, not man. Don't fear the persecution. Don't fear what they can do because they do not matter. They matter in as much as you are going to take the gospel to them, but when they fight against you, when they persecute you, that does not matter. The only thing that matters is the mission. And that's what he covers in verses 34 through 39, our focus this morning, that the disciples, that we are to pursue a radical mission, and that is the only thing that matters. I talked about that a little bit last week. A lot of discussion about politics and who we're going to vote for. And I do not want to say that is unimportant because that is for a number of reasons. But it is not the most important. The most important thing is that God's people, his subjects, the subjects of the kingdom of God are doing kingdom business. And we can look throughout scripture, but voting is not kingdom business. Sharing the gospel is kingdom business. Does voting encourage it? Does it help it? Possibly. But the church has grown fastest and biggest. Right now, the church is growing fastest and biggest in those places where Christianity is outlawed. It is declining in the freest country on earth. Christianity is declining in America, but it is growing faster than anywhere else in China where they cannot have a church. So all those have kingdom implications that we need to understand going in, but we need to understand that we have a radical mission. Our radical mission today is to take the gospel. And we see verses 34 through 39, what our mission is going to do. 
Verse 34 tells us that our mission will cause division. Jesus said, don't assume that I came to bring, to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is not a call to evangelize by force. This is not convert or else. That's what Islam does. That is not what Christianity does. That is what Christianity has done. But that is not what Christianity is supposed to do. We do not convert by force. We convert by the Holy Spirit. We convert by the very message that we have, and it is the power of that message. It is the power of that gospel that converts. Do we have opportunities to explain to people, to talk to people, to, uh, uh, to proceed with apologetics? And apologetics is not apologizing, but explaining, defending the faith. Sure, absolutely, we may do all those things in our evangelism, but our purpose, our, our method is not by force. Do this or else it is by, well, by love, by explanation, by merely presenting the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. The sword here that Jesus talks about is symbolic. It's symbolic of division. So he's not saying, I have come to give you a sword to go and fight for the gospel, to go kill people for the gospel. What he is saying is, I have come, I have brought a sword, I have brought division because the very nature of the gospel is that it will divide. He is also telling them this sword is, is symbolic of persecution, which he's already talked about a couple of times, at least Matthew has, in the gospel. He's bringing a sword, and that sword will be used not by us to convert the heathen, but it will be used by the heathen to stop the message of the gospel. And that is what we are to ex expect. As I said, the very nature of our message will divide. Anytime you tell people, just do, a, do an experiment if you're, if you're feeling bold one day. Talk to somebody about God. Just God. Not, not Jesus. Just God. And see how most people will be perfectly fine with that conversation. Oh, we can talk about God. A, a generic, uh, non-named, uh, non-involved God. You call him God. I call him an energy force. He calls him uh, Vishnu. He calls him uh, uh, right living. He calls him something else. But it's all God. And we can have a very nice, calm conversation about God because it's non-exclusive. Then bring up Jesus. Tell him God has a name. Tell them God is a trinity. Say that Jesus is God. And not only is Jesus God, but Jesus says that you can't follow an energy. You can't follow Vishnu. You can't follow Buddha. You can't follow Muhammad. Those are paths that will not take you to God. The only path, the only way, the only truth, the only life is found in Jesus. You start bringing that up, and people don't want to talk about God anymore. Saw a cartoon uh, the other day that uh, had a guy wearing a T-shirt that said, uh, "Let me tell you about Jesus." And he was talking to a guy at the bus stop, and he said, "It always guarantees me a seat by myself." 
People don't want to hear about Jesus. We can talk about God. Have mercy. People find out I'm a preacher outside of church. They'll talk about God all day. They'll tell me all about what they think about God. If I bring up Jesus, shuts down that conversation in a hurry. Because there's exclusivity. There is division when it comes to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the way and nothing else is. Well, that kind of steps on some toes. Jesus says, I have come to bring division. Our mission will cause division. Verses 35 through 36 tell us our mission will split families. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is a quote from Micah chapter 7, verse 6. Way back then, some oh, 450, 600 or so years before Jesus, they understood that the, there was going to be some difficulty in the Messianic age. That when the Messiah came, there were going to be problems. And those problems were not going to be because of the Messiah. He wasn't going to cause the problems. It would be the message of the Messiah that caused the problems. And Micah knew families are going to turn against each other. As a matter of fact, I contend persecution is more likely to come from family than from anyone else. When we turn to Christ, when we get on fire, when we become radical about our mission, who is the first? Our friends will say, boy, you've you're different. Our family will say, you're nuts and you're bringing some bad stuff on our name and you need to stop it. Different issue. Family persecutes more. Who are the ones right now in, in Islamic-held countries who are killing the Christians? Primarily, it's family members because they have dishonored the name of the family. Persecution comes from the family. Now, this, this is not the goal. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, y'all, one of my purposes is to save people and, and split up families. That, that's not what he's saying at all. This is not his purpose, but it is a result of fidelity to Christ's mission. If we are a people who are going to be true to the mission, our families will not like it all the time. Now, maybe you have a wonderfully devout committed, mission-minded, mission-focused, Jesus-sharing family, and everybody is good with it, that is wonderful. But let me guarantee you that if you get far enough out to some outlier aunts and uncles or cousins, or maybe you could get to some grandparents, you will find people who will not be with you on that. It will divide families. But the beauty is we're part of a new family. Yes, we lose family members over this, and we may lose family members for life. You're, uh, some of you are going through seeking Allah, finding Jesus. Uh, Nabil uh, Qureshi, I think I got his last name right there, uh, has lost his family because of his faith. To my knowledge, last I saw, they have not reconciled because he left Islam. That happens every day. And it doesn't have to be something as radical as is Islam. It could be just an atheist family that says, how can you believe this hokum that, that, that Jesus was God and a man and didn't raised from the dead? You know that's not. You have lost your ever-loving mind. And that person has to put up with that from their family, but what they have is a new family, a family of brothers and sisters, all of us, but a, a family of new parents in the faith, new grandparents in the faith, 
brothers and sisters who are growing with them. Same age spiritually. That is what Jesus has set apart here in the family. So our mission, if we are faithful to the mission, will split families. Verse 37 tells us that our mission requires new loyalties. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Parents often attempt to dissuade from the mission. Think missionaries. I have heard of instances where grandparents sue their children because the children want to take grandchildren to an unsafe country to do the mission of God. They sue them to have them taken away because they are endangering the children. They, are, they have gone, and, and, and sometimes this is actual Christian grandparents who respond to the call of God to take the gospel to the darkest places where people, where millions of people die weekly without the gospel. A family wants to go, and the grandparents say, not with my grandchildren, you're not. And they literally take it to the courts in order to have that stopped. Those parents have new loyalties. We are no longer loyal to our parents. Yes, we honor family, we honor mother and father, uh, we, we do a number of things, but when it comes to the mission versus mama, the mission should win every time. I don't know if I heard enough amens on that, but that's okay. Uh, some of you have mamas in here, so you're kind of, mm, amen. I understand that, but when it comes down to it, that is the choice we have to make. And it may just be that they think you're going overboard. It might not be that they're going to sue you for your children. But it might be that you have lost your ever-loving mind. Think of Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 says, The family, mama and the brothers and sisters, came to lay hold of him. What, what does that mean? It, it means they thought he was nuts. And they were coming to, All right, Jesus, I think it's time to go home and lay down. You need a nap, Jesus. You've gotten a little... This, this religion thing you've, you've kind of gotten off on, it's, it's kind of controlling you. I mean, can, can you hear the conversation? Yeah, we all... Yes, yeah, Jesus, we all need a little Hebrew Bible in our lives. We got it. Yes, the... Yeah, we know. Ten Commandments, we understand. But, but you're talking about some crazy things. You're, you sat in church last Sunday... Saturday, and in synagogue, not in church. But anyways, go with me. You sat in church last Sunday, and you sat in the chair that nobody sits in because that's the Messiah chair. That, that chair can only be sat in by the Messiah. You sat in that chair. Then you got yourself up, read Isaiah about the Messiah coming, said, in your presence today, this passage has been fulfilled. You sat down again. Jesus, you can't do that. What, you think you're the Messiah? Yeah. Oh, well, now I know you're nuts. All right, you know, no. That, if I'm lying, somebody tell me. Do, do families look at you sometimes and say, you know, you're, you're, you're just taking it a little too far. You know, it's just a little too much. We all need a little religion. But you're just taking it, ah, I don't know. 
That's what we see. We cannot be loyal to that. Because God never said, I want you all to get a little religion. I want you all to be just religious enough to make you feel good and look good enough to get elected. Or look good enough to get business. You know, I've known people, uh, and if this is any of y'all, I'm sorry, uh, I, but, but I'm not talking about anyone in this room at the moment as far as I know. Business owners who, who are, uh, I, I knew one particularly in, uh, in a church I served in Texas. He was a member of every organization possible. Uh, I, I'm not going to call his name, and I don't think any of those people ever watch my sermons, so I'd probably be safe, but I'm not going to call his name. I don't even want to tell you his line of business, but it is a line of business that everybody's going to need at some point, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. He joined all these organizations. Why? Oh, okay, he, was an, he, he owned a funeral home. So he could stuff you when you died. I mean, that's, that's, all he, that, that's, that's why. He, this and that and the other, and he was just drumming up business. Sometimes we see church as that kind of thing. It makes me look respectable. And that is the, that is the southern church culture for the last 75 years. That's why when people tell you churches are declining, that's true. Churches are declining at a rapid rate. But what we're finding out is in the U.S. for a long time, if you have 100% of the people in the U.S., 25% of the people were never religious at all. Didn't go to church, didn't care a thing about it, didn't want to talk about it. The 25% down here were what we would call born-again Christians. People that when asked, yes, I am a believer. Now that could include... Uh, Catholic, that could include any number of groups, but says, yes, I am a believing Christian, and it affects my life every day. In the middle, what Ed Stetzer calls the squishy middle, were all the people who went to church because they were supposed to. That's it. They, they went to church on Sunday morning. Uh, they were mostly uh, committed to be there, and, and that's all they did. And what we're finding is this 25% down here really isn't changing that much. As a matter of fact, that might even be ticking up just a little bit, but it's, it's holding pretty steady. What we're losing is the squishy middle. That 50% in the middle is no, lo no longer cares if people think they're Christian. They're moving to that 25% at the top, which is becoming then 30, then 40, then so on and so forth. They're, they're not loyal to Christ, so it's okay. After a while, nobody expects them to be cultural Christians, and they're fine with it. That is our culture. More and more, regardless of who gets elected, because remember, this kingdom, this empire, this country will fall someday. Not next week, maybe not next year, but it will fall. When Jesus comes back, I don't know if this country will exist when that happens. doesn't matter to me one way or the other, but this country will fall, and God's kingdom on earth will be uh, set through Jesus Christ. The loyalties are going to be brought out over time, over the next few years, over the next couple of decades, more and more, you will be forced to choose your loyalty. Will it be to Christ? Will it be to your family or your country, whatever country exists at that point? Will it be to friends? Our mission requires new loyalties. Jesus says, if you, if you can't do these things, he said in this verse, if you, uh, 
you know, if, you, if you're not able to leave father and mother, if you love father and more than, than me, you're not worthy of me, that word there actually would be more like have what it takes. Jesus is actually turning people away. Heavens. Yeah. He's saying, you know what? You might not have what it takes to follow me. Because this is not going to be pretty. We're going to look at that at the next point. You might not have what it takes. The rich young ruler that came to him and said, I want to follow you. And, and, and he said, Jesus said, that is wonderful. Tell me all the things you've done. Inherit eternal life. What, uh, tell me all the things you've done to, to do that. Well, I, I, I follow this rule and that rule and that rule. Oh, you have, good job, man. Oh, sell everything you own. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the young ruler went away sad because he was very wealthy. He was loyal, not to God, but to his money, his, his family, his name, his status. He did not have what it took because Jesus said, you've got to give up everything to follow me. Not just Sunday morning, not just the beginning of the Cowboys game or the Saints game. I've got to remember I'm in Louisiana now, not Texas. Um, not just give up the first 30, 45 minutes of, of, of the Saints when they play on Sunday. Not, not just get up, you know, the right time to be at church, even if you've been up until midnight watching LSU trounce Ole Miss. You know, you, you still, not, not, that's not sacrifice. Oh, I went to bed at midnight, now I get, I get up at seven. Oh, Jesus, do you see how I'm being persecuted? No. Jesus says, you must be worthy. You must have what it takes. Because lastly, our mission requires a willingness to die. And whoever does not, verse 38, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Y'all, this is not a burden, it's death. We've taken the phrase, my cross to bear, and we've made it to mean our mother-in-law. That is not what it means. This is not your mother-in-law. This is you carrying the instrument of your own death. When Jesus talked about his cross to bear to these people, they knew what a cross to bear meant. When Jesus said, I, I, I need you to follow me, come after me with your cross, he knew because one day, not too long in the, in the future, I will be carrying my cross. And you need to come behind me and carry it as well. Well, what happened was they didn't, right? The disciples didn't, didn't carry the cross. Some random guy, Simon from Cyrene, he ended up having to carry Jesus' cross for him because the others would not stay with him. They were not loyal. They were not willing to carry the burden of their own death. To carry the name of Christ is to carry the instrument of your own death. Did you hear me? To carry the name of Christ is to carry the instrument of your own death. If you are carrying the name of Christ the way you are supposed to, it should be that it kills you. Michael? Yeah. I said it. If you are not willing to get up and say, no matter what, I will carry this name, then Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. Now, the most any of us will probably ever have to experience in carrying our cross, and this is where the phrase, I think, has gotten watered down, is we may have to put up with some people giving us the look. 
And we'll call that persecution and that our cross to bear. I had to talk to somebody I don't know about Jesus. Oh, my burden is so heavy. And Jesus says, you know what? You're, you actually really ought to be willing to die. Not just, you know, have the possibility that some waiter spits in your food because you mentioned Jesus to him at the table. We call that persecution. See, this Christianity that we're talking about here, this mission that we're talking about, this, this devotion to Christ that we're talking about is not a pretty, happy, docile Christianity. Show me the pretty, happy, docile Christianity in the Passion Week. Show me the pretty, happy, docile Christianity on the cross. Show me the pretty, happy, docile Christianity of Peter being crucified upside down and Paul being beheaded and Thomas being shot through with arrows and Bartholomew, Thaddeus, the guy we rarely ever hear of, being probably, as we understand it, skinned alive for his faith. Show me the happy, docile, safe, pretty Christianity of the people that right now across the seas are being crucified for their faith in a country because they said, I will not bow, I will not give up my faith, and I will not deny my Jesus. Show me the happy, docile Christianity there, and I will laugh in your face. There is no happy, docile, safe, pretty Christianity. C.S. Lewis, I think, captured it beautifully in the Chronicles of Narnia. The kids get to Narnia through the, through the wardrobe. They meet all these talking creatures. Meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. One of the kids asks about Aslan. They're hearing about this lion, Aslan. They ask Mr. Beaver, is he safe? <laughs> Mr. Beaver responds, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If you're not familiar with the story, Aslan represents Christ. And I think C.S. Lewis nailed it. We want a safe Jesus, but Jesus is not safe. But he's good. So if he calls me, if he sends me, if he gives me the mission and says, die for the mission, I know it is good. It will not be safe but it is good. If he calls me to my restaurant next door to the church to witness to the waiter or waitress that I am being served by on a Sunday afternoon, it is not safe, but it is good. The mission must be more important than anyone, even you. The mission that God has called me to must be more important than my friends, my family, and me, because it is not safe. Wilberforce lost friends, likely his life, because of what he stood for. He, he experienced many, many stress-related illnesses, even before he brought this message to Parliament, but even more so after it. He lost much, just for this one message, that is an, an incredible, true, must have, should have been done, should have never been an issue message, because we should never own anyone else. But he lost his life, was willing to give up his life for it. And as great as that cause was, our cause is greater. Because we're not talking about slavery to people, as heinous and horrible as that is, we're talking about slavery to sin. 
We're talking about an eternal slavery to destruction, separation from God. We have the message to overcome that. The mission will be hard. Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. See, the question is, are you willing to endure? Are you willing to suffer the persecution? Are you willing to, to suffer, to carry the instrument of your death into hostile territory? You know, in World War II, it was understood that if you wore a medic's patch, they wouldn't shoot you. I mean, that you, you, you weren't armed, you weren't a combatant, you were there to, to help people. It, it didn't always work out that way. Uh, it didn't, uh, it ended up not being safe for you. They would take you out anyway, a lot of, a lot of them. I, one of the things that they would do would be to, uh, the, the, the foreign countries would learn medic, medic, medic in English in order to attract the medics to the spot and then shoot them when they got there. But they were willing to go into enemy territory with the help that was needed, knowing that they may never come out. We have such a greater task than mere medicine to wounded people. We have the hope of eternity to people who will die and go to hell without it. Our message is greater, and we must endure to the end. We must be willing to say, no persecution will ever slow me down. No loss of family, no loss of friends, no loss of status, no loss of face, no loss of honor, no loss of position, no loss of wealth will ever slow me down from the mission God has placed before me. That is the call of Jesus on his people. This is a radical mission that will cause division. It's a radical mission that will split families. It is a radical mission that requires new loyalties. It is a radical mission that requires a willingness to die. But it is a radical mission that requires a radical life change. I hope this morning you're offended and confronted and confused and wounded and pensive and thoughtful and curious and scared and worried and any number of things so that we can begin to see a radical life change in each one of us. This may be something different than we thought about. This may be more than we had planned, but this is nothing less than the absolute call, the definite call on the life of everyone who claims Jesus Christ as Lord. Is he safe? <laughs> oh, no. But he is good. He's good enough that he provides a relationship with him. Only a true relationship with Jesus makes you worthy provides what it takes. If you have tried to live the Christian life on your own strength, you have tried to be a, cult a good cultural Christian, you have found that you cannot be because maybe you are trying it without the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus. 
Maybe you spent years in a church thinking, I'm saved, I'm good, I'm a member, but man, this life is hard. I'm just not able to keep up with what I'm called to do, and I'm certainly not willing to take my cross. My mother-in-law is enough of a cross. I don't want the instrument of my death too. Maybe today you need to realize that that true relationship is not there. You need a radical change this morning. The gospel tells us that. Romans 3.23 tells us we have all sinned. That's the beginning of it. Our problem is sin. Our problem is our sinfulness, our sin nature. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot be a committed Christian without having the blood of Jesus on your life. You cannot live for the gospel without having experienced the gospel yourself. And yes, I believe there are many in our churches today who are trying to do that very thing. Sin is your problem. The wages of those sin is death. You suffer death because of your sinfulness, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a fix for the sin. You can't do it, but Jesus can. He's the way to fix your sin. He's the truth that exposes your sin. He is the life that overcomes the death that is caused by your sin. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, and God proved it while we were yet sinners because even then Christ died for us. Long before we would ever be able to respond. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I've said it every Sunday, and I will say it every Sunday, that I'm honored, pleased, and allowed to be your pastor. There's no one here that is beyond the grace of Jesus. There's no one within the sound of my voice, whether it's internet TV or anywhere else, who is beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. Anyone Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but you must call on him. If you confess with your mouth, not just because you heard the message this morning, not just because somewhere inside you're giving a mental assent to what's going on. Mm -hmm. No, but that if you confess with your mouth, if you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. See, there's an act you must, I hate to say, perform. There is a response that is needed by you. Come to Jesus this morning. Respond to him. Live a radical life. Live a radical mission. Give up family, if that's what is required. Give up friends, if that's what's required. Give up loyalties, if that's what is required. Give up your life if that is what is required oh by the way that's what's required this morning give it give it to him I beg you let's pray father God we thank you that though it isn't scripture it reflects scripture that as Lewis wrote Lord you are not safe but you are good God, we can know the hope of salvation through the worst of circumstances. God, we are called to share the hope of salvation regardless of the circumstances. Lord God, you have called us to mission and told us, guess what, you're going to die. Lord, make us bold for that mission. Make us hopeful for that mission, Lord, and use each and every one here this morning. If there is someone here this morning, God, I know, you're, I know you're drawing them. I don't have to pray that. 
But Lord, I do pray that they respond to your Holy Spirit's drawing. That this morning they will come forward. They will say, I want to make public my new faith in Christ. I want to make public my choice to follow. Lord, I pray that you would do something mighty in this place through new Christians, lost people coming to know you as Savior, and Lord, through old Christians who have wanted their faith to be a badge or uh, a status symbol, but have not wanted, to be, wanted it to be the instrument of their death. Lord, I pray this morning that we will commit, and this will take some time, to work out, to, to build up. But today we begin to say, Lord, I want to carry my cross. I want to let, make my faith the instrument of my death. I want to be so bold that it does not matter what comes against me. I will share you. Lord, make that our mission this morning in hearts across this place. Lord, you do your work. It's not about the words I use, but it's about you, your Holy Spirit, and the hearts, hearts of the people that hear you. And I pray they hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your decision this morning? Maybe you need to trust Christ. Maybe you need to follow uh, in believer's baptism. You've trusted him, but you've not made it public. Maybe you need to join our church. Maybe you want to be a part. You want to say, you know what? Not only will I, do I want it to be the mission, I want to join with these brothers and sisters in order to make that the mission that we're called to, to fulfill that mission. Maybe you have other things. You, you need to recommit. You need to... to uh, Get some things out of your life. I will be happy to pray with you. You can pray here at the altar. You can fill it out on a connection card. Let us talk to you if that's what you want. We can pray with you. But this morning, as we sing, as we come to our closing time, I pray that you will do business with God. Let's stand and let's sing and let God speak to us this morning.